fellow students, if you would open to Esther uh, chapter 5, we're going to cover three chapters today and then uh, we'll spend one more week, Lord willing, finishing up Esther and then we'll get into uh, Ezra for two weeks and then we'll open the minor prophets for the next three months. And uh, then we're going to spend uh, quite a lot of time in Revelation. They've given us 12 weeks, and I think I'll just take six months. I'm already reading commentaries in that. So <clears throat> uh, I have never in my life sat through a series in Revelation, ever. And I've been in church since I uh, was, could walk. And it, it, somehow it's been not covered, and I think that that's true across the board. So we want to spend a fair chunk of time in there. Let's just recap, and then we'll, we'll, we'll go through 5, 6, and 7. God has arranged Esther to be queen by divine appointment. Five years after Esther becomes queen, we found out last week, King Ahasuerus appoints a new prime minister. This new prime minister's name is Haman, and he's the Hitler of the Old Testament, and he persuades the king relatively quickly that it's in his best interest to massacre 2 to 3 million Jews within the realm of the Persian Empire. Mordecai then challenges Esther to go to the king and plead with him to change his mind and rescind this order to uh, massacre and commit genocide for the Jewish people. Here's the key idea. John 5:17 says, Jesus is talking and he says, My father always is working and I am working until now. Here's the key thought. And I, I stole this directly from Don Moen. For those of you that have been around for a while, this is an old, old, old song. And it says, God will make a way where there seems to be no way. He works in ways we cannot see. He will make a way for me. That is the key thought of this lesson. You will see God behind the scenes over and over and over and over in these three chapters, working, making arrangements, maneuvering, putting people in the right place at the right time to accomplish specifically what he has in mind. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now it came about on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's rooms, and the king was sitting on his royal throne in the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. You know, she's been praying for how many days now? Three. Three days with the rest of the Jews in the city of Susa, the capital. And at some point in time, you stop praying and you start acting, right? You, you have to live out the faith that you say. Faith without works is useless, according to James. So she's going to get dressed up and see the king, and she does. And I bet if you put a a heart monitor on her. Her heart was going pitter-patter, 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 right? right? So I want you to consider the scope of the problem that Esther is attempting to accomplish by God's grace. Number one, to speak to the king. She has to break the law of the empire that says if you don't get the scepter handed out to you, you die. That's the default option. Nobody comes into the king's presence unannounced, unasked for. The automatic sentence, the default option is death unless he extends the golden scepter. So she was breaking that law, number one. Number two, she's going to have to admit to the king that she's a Jewish, a Jewess, a Jewish national, and he's been married to her for five years, and she's been in the harem for one year before that, and no one knows that she's a Jew at this point. The king certainly doesn't, and neither does Haman. Very, very critical you understand that. This king doesn't like surprises. So who he's married is not who he thinks he's married. Problem. Number three, third challenge. Persian laws could never be changed. Once they're set, they're set. 
she's going to try and persuade him to overturn one of his own laws. That's a tough sell in the best of times, right? Number four, she's going to have to go head-to-head -head against the prime minister of the nation, and he is very powerful and very wicked. Okay? Number five, she's going to have to tell the king that he made a lousy appointment as prime minister. The prime minister is wicked. He's evil. It was a dangerous decision, and this king has made a horrible mistake, and he doesn't like being told he's wrong. She's got a major set of issues in front of her at that point in time. As a matter of fact, none of these things are going to be possible without divine intervention. But God has been at work. You're going to see his hand behind the scenes. You're going to see his hand come forward here visibly preparing Esther to succeed because God is always working. God is always working. Some of us are in situations right now I can promise you where you are wondering whether God is working. Some of you are in situations, and I've been there, where you wonder if he just took a vacation. And you're saying, God, you get four weeks off, but I mean, there's six weeks off, but I need you back now, right? He's working. He's working when you can't see it. He's working when you can't sense it. Verse 2. And it happened when the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court... She obtained favor in his sight, and the king extended to Esther the golden scepter which was in his hand, so Esther came near and touched the top of the scepter. By the way, this, she obtained favor in his sight. Underline that. Number one item, who gave her favor in his sight? Favor with people comes from the Lord. The heart of the king is in the hands of the Lord. Obviously, it's number one. Verse three, then the king said to her, What is troubling you, Queen Esther? And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it will be given to you. Now, believe it or not, this sounds like a pretty perceptive guy. I mean, what's his first question to her? What's, what's bothering you? He must have noticed by her facial expressions, her body language, something that she was troubled. She was anxious. She was upset. That's the nice version. The more cynical version says... This guy was so used to people asking for things that he automatically assumed anybody who got dressed up and come to see me wants something. Could be a combination of both at that point. But he does call her by her formal title. Queen Esther. Honors her position. Now remember, when's the last time she saw him? More than a month. Because she told Mordecai, he hasn't called me for 30 days. I haven't seen his face in 30 days. Now this half of the kingdom bit. This is hyperbole. The kings would say, even to half of the kingdom, I'll give it to you. They didn't mean that seriously. It's a vast exaggeration. It means you are so important to me that there is nothing I would not do for you. Right? So he's, he's making some pretty vast promises. Now, she doesn't ask for half of the kingdom, right? What does she ask for? Dinner. She asks him for dinner, right? Yeah, she asks him just to have a banquet. Do dinner. Verse 4. And Esther says, if it please the king, may the king and Haman come this day to the banquet that I have prepared for them. Have you ever wondered if the king says, what, is, what do you want? What is your request? Why she just didn't lay it on him right then? He's in session in the court, right? This is a public forum. She probably doesn't want to bring a very personal request in front of God and everybody. Number one. Number two. The king had business going on, right? 
She's only one of multiple people who's seeing him that day. He's in the court doing public business. She wants more attention. Have you ever tried to talk to your spouse when they're busy doing something else? Never. <laughs> Never. Some of you have just learned to give it up, right? Yeah, depends on what you want. Yeah, yeah. She hasn't seen him in 30 days. I want you to visualize this picture. You're on a long vacation without your spouse. And I can hear some of you say, well, that by definition would be a vacation. But anyway, I just saying, as Nancy said, just saying, just putting it out there, right? That's what Mia says, right? She hasn't seen him in 30 days. Here's a key principle. You always reestablish a relationship before making a request. These are the R words. You reestablish a relationship before making a request. Ladies, gentlemen, when you come home at night after not seeing your spouse, your loved ones, your children for a few hours, the first five minutes of your reconnection are the most important part of the day. The second most important part of the day is the last five minutes before you left in the morning. If you screw up those 10 minutes, you can wreck a marriage. I'm not kidding you. That's, I'm, I'm being bloody serious. That is really, really true. Because what your spouse thinks of you for the eight hours or nine hours or 10 hours you were gone, you're the one who set the stage by how you left them, right? And how they're going to view you for the next three or four hours before bedtime is gonna be based on that five minutes. Reconnecting is critical. It is so important. Esther gets this. She says, I haven't seen him in 30 days. I wanna reestablish our relationship before I present him with this life or death request. Very bright lady, very bright lady. Guys, most of your spouses get this. 99% of the women in my life, this is just automatic. They're intuitive. Guys, pay attention. So she's thought about this. She's made banquet preparation. She knows the king is fond of food and drink. You know, banquets are mentioned nine times in this book. Nine times, almost one a chapter. They're always having a party, right? What intrigued me is the fact that she invited Haman to the party. And I'm thinking, why would she invite Haman to the party? Here's some tentative, I don't know this, but there's, here's some tentative suppositions. Number one, she wants to make the case in front of the king and Haman so Haman can't deny it later on. She knows he's clever. He's wicked, but he's clever, and she wants to make sure he doesn't try and excuse his behavior. She also knows that Haman's an egomaniac and he doesn't have very good self-control and he might implicate himself in front of the king. Sure enough, it's exactly what happens. Verse four, then the king said, bring Haman quickly that we may do as Esther desires. So the king and Haman came to the banquet which Esther had prepared. So it's interesting. She was concerned that the king would want to see her and now he says, get Haman quickly. Let's go to the banquet. These, she's got two men that want to please her. Wow, that's pretty good, right? I don't know what time of day she invited them to the banquet, but they came. It's a private banquet. There's only three at the party. Everybody else is servers. There's just three, king, prime minister, and the queen. Probably took place in her apartment, queen, queen's apartments. She had a complex there. 
She's the number one lady in the harim, so she had the, the biggest apartment. Verse 5. And as they drank wine at the banquet, the king said to Esther, What is your petition? What's he say next? For it shall be granted to you. By and large, gentlemen, don't make promises until you know what's being at. Just a general thought. And by the way, grandparents in this room, don't make open-ended promises to your grandchildren. They remember forever. You promised when I was 26 months old that we would do blah, blah, blah. And you ain't done it. And I'm now 26 years old, right? Be careful what you promise. But this king has such vast resources, he's used to making these open-ended promises. And most of the time, he's got the revenue to fill them. Old line by Flip Wilson says, don't let your mouth write checks that your body can't cash. So he's been, he's asking her the second time because he understands that there's something behind the banquet. There's method behind the meal. He knows she's just not inviting him for the meal, so he wants to know what's going on. And this is the second time that he promises to grant her request sight unseen. He says, whatever it is, I'll meet your petition. We're going to come back to that. She's got a yes set going here that's real important. Verse 6. So Esther answered, and said, my petition, my request is, and you jump down to verse 8, she says, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, if it pleases the king to grant my petition and do as I request, what does she ask for? Another banquet, right? A second celebration. And tomorrow she says, I will do as the king says. I promise I will make known my request. Here's the principle. Ecclesiastes 3.7 says there is a time to speak and a time to shut up. It doesn't exactly say shut up. It says remain <laughs> silent, right? Close your lips. The principle is, Rob's got it on the screen, ask God to guide your mouth. I, I changed that. I initially said, let the Holy Spirit shut you up from time to time. I thought that was a little rude. Most of us, I'm the key sinner in this, don't lack for words. What we lack for is silence. This is a very wise woman. She knows there's a time to speak and a time not to. Now, I do not know what she saw or heard at the first banquet that led her to believe that it wasn't the right time to make the request. Obviously, you see the providence of God and the leading of the Holy Spirit here, but it wasn't the right time or the right way, the right season to make that request night number one. So she said, let's have another banquet. She was listening to the Holy Spirit clearly. Now, she had prepared the banquet, but the heart of the king had not yet been prepared. Who's going to prepare the heart of the king for this request? God is. Some very important things are going to happen are going to happen in the next 24 hours that we don't know about, but God does know about. The other sidebar here is this was a very impatient man. This is the second time she told him, wait, what's your request? Come to a party. What's your request? Come to another party. This guy's not used to being told no, right? So the Holy Spirit has in fact given him patience to wait for the requests that she's made, and he's okay with that at that point in time. I also think you should never underestimate the power of curiosity. 
Do you wonder? Well, I'm at two parties and she hasn't told me what the issues are. Wonder what they might be. Do you ever think he was a little curious? Would you be a little curious if your spouse did this to you? Think about it. I want you to put it in context. Your spouse comes to you and it's obviously their trouble and they say, what is it, dear, can we talk about it? And they say, let's go out to dinner. And at dinner you say, what's happening? How can I help? And they look at you and go, can we go to dinner tomorrow night too? How patient would you be if your spouse... Pardon? Yeah, you have no taste buds. Don't worry about it. <clears throat> Think about it. This, this is a king with a lot of business to do. He's a pretty important guy. You see the Holy Spirit at work here giving a very impatient man patience with Esther's divine timing. Now, the other sovereign thing here that you don't see unless you read between the lines is God kept Esther's attendants from spilling the beans. They know. Her maids know that she's now Jewish because they had a three-day prayer meeting together, right? She said, I had my maids will fast and pray, etc. What would have been the consequence if someone in her entourage, her little group of ladies, had spilled the beans to Haman? And told him, by the way, you want to kill all those Jewish people? The queen is, happens to be one of them. Whoa, I think he would have altered his strategy. We know this guy's clever, right? So the Holy Spirit keeps her secret. You don't see that. It doesn't say it. But that's the sovereignty of God. Some of us have things that the Holy Spirit hasn't revealed yet, and we are most grateful. Right? Be grateful. The Lord has a time and a season for that. The other thing that hasn't been revealed yet is Mordecai's good deed that he did five years before has not been rewarded yet, and God's going to make that happen tonight because God has arranged an appointment between the king and the history books. Now, Haman, verse 10. Haman leaves the banquet and he is euphoric. This guy is, it's all about me. You got to listen to this. Verse 10. Haman goes to his house and he sent for his entourage and his groupies and his wife Zeresh. It doesn't really say that. It says his friends. This guy is always surrounded by groupies, right? Then Haman, after they're all there, what does it say in verse 11 he does? When you read this verse, doesn't it just want to make you throw up? When you read it, right? Then Haman recounted to them the glory of his riches and the number of his sons. In every instance where the king had magnified him and how he had promoted him above the princes and the servants. Verse 12 really wants to make you sick. Then Haman said, even Esther the queen let no one but me come with the king to the banquet. Ain't I important? Man, I'm large and in charge. He thinks Esther really likes him. Whoa. This is ego run wild. It's all about me. I, 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 I. Verse 13 reveals a very important principle. He's got all the goodies. He's got all the adulation. He's got all the power and the kids and the wealth and the position. In verse 13, he loses it. He says, yet all of this does not satisfy me every time I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Wow! You got the whole kingdom, fool. You're the prime minister. Right? 
but my whole life really stinks because one guy won't give me the respect that I want. Have you ever let another person ruin your day? I've seen people lose their cookies over some fool that doesn't know how to drive. Here's the really sad part. They stay mad for a couple hours. And they tell you at 10 o'clock, that jerk this morning, blah, blah. And you go, you're still carrying that guy around? That happened at 7.30. That's two and a half hours. You're going to let some fool driver ruin your attitude for two and a half hours of the day? Really? Here's the principle. Covetousness kills contentment. Covetousness kills contentment. Satisfaction only comes from submission to God. Now that, that applicable, that is so applicable to us. Almost every time you and I are discontented with what God has provided, what are we looking at? What we don't have and someone else does. And we say, God, you are not fair. They've got two lollipops and I only have one. And their lollipop is chocolate and mine is just not chocolate. Wham, wham, right? <laughs> this guy is literally going to sign his own death warrant trying to get even with one person. And he's the prime minister. Now that's the stupidity of pride. There is no satisfaction ultimately apart from submission to God. We're going to see that. Verse 14. Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends said to him, now this is really wise counsel. Somebody won't suck up to you the way you want to be sucked up to. Just kill them. Right? Simple. Take them out. Pardon? Verse 14. Here's the counsel he got from godless people. Have a gallows 50 cubits high. That's 75 feet, by the way. And in the morning, ask the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then you can go joyfully to the banquet after you knock this guy off, right? <laughs> and the advice pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. Now, I want you to notice how Haman describes Mordecai's position. What's Mordecai's physical position? He's sitting. That can't be allowed. What should he be doing? Bowing, right? You should be on your face. I am the prime minister. I'm large and in charge. And Mordecai is just sitting, taking care of business. He's not going to bow down to this guy, and he doesn't like it. Haman has a terminal case of God envy, just like Satan. No, no matter how much honor he had, it was never enough. Number two was unacceptable. Every single person had to bow down or it wasn't good enough, right? By the way, 50 cubits high is 75 feet. That's about the height of the wall, right? See, Haman didn't just want Mordecai dead. He wanted him publicly, visibly, humiliatingly dead. That's pathetic. But this is Satan, right? This is Satan. Satan wants all the worship. And his children want all the worship too. Chapter 6. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, verse 1. During the night, the king could not sleep. Wow, Zambian didn't work. So he gave an order to bring the book of the records, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. By the way, there's no reason given for the insomnia. 
some speculation. Maybe he was wondering what was upsetting Esther so much that she would have to do two banquets and hadn't told him yet. Here's an interesting thought. Maybe the king was kept awake because Haman's crew was building this gallows all night long and they were making a lot of noise. Ah. <laughs> Maybe the king was wondering why Haman was invited to the banquet and not just him and her. Don't know. The bottom line is God is behind the scenes orchestrating everything according to the divine plan. See, we can only see with our physical eyes and we can only see a very narrow range of the light spectrum to start with. And so we see this and we see these things happen and we go, well, they just happened. If you could see behind the scenes, what would you see? How many angels would you see being dispatched from heaven to go do, influence, take care of, keep them awake, put them to sleep? Stir them up and get them to do something stupid. How much divine spiritual influence? About? We don't see that. But it's all there. And it's far more real than what we can see with our eyes. So let me hold some things out for you here just to get your eye hands around. There are five examples of providence listed right here in this chapter. Number one, the king's insomnia. Why did the king not sleep? God's providence. Why would anybody choose to read a history lesson and chronicles are just so-and-so did so-and-so and they got this. So-and-so did so -and -so. This is a diary, a national diary, right? So the king's choice of entertainment, very boring. Maybe he wanted to fall asleep right now. He might have. How was it that a servant could choose that particular chronicle? Out of all the libraries of historical records, they would pick the one that had to do with Mordecai. God's providence. How come the king, who was very, very rigorous about rewarding good behavior, had failed to reward Mordecai up until now? God's working. How is it that Haman shows up in the outer court at just the right time? Right? Verse 2. It was found written what Mordecai had reported concerning Bignath and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who were doorkeepers, that they had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. That's shorthand to kill him, assassination. And the king said, What honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? Then the king's servants who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. They had libraries of court records. Everything was written down. That's how come we know so much about them. But the odds that they would not have taken care of Mordecai's good deed, very, very slim. This king was known throughout history for reward, rewarding loyal behavior. Rapidly. So... You look at that and say, that's interesting because that event happened five years ago. Five years ago, they hadn't done anything. God surfaces this on this very night. And that's one of the reasons Esther didn't say anything. So the king's in Mordecai's debt and he wants to reward him as soon as possible. Verse 4, the king says, who is in the court? Here's another part of God's divine hand. Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace in order to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows, which he had prepared for him. You know, the, 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 you look at the timing of this and you go, that had to happen, that had to happen, that had to happen, that had to happen. That. I think there's probably design here, right? This is not by accident. Yeah, the universe came into existence on its own by chance. Yeah, right. Of course, you had to get the king's permission to impale somebody. When they said hang, that doesn't mean by the neck. That means they stuck a stake into your chest and shoved you up in the air. Not a, not a fun way to die. So they had to have the, he had to get, a, he had to get um, permission to, to murder Mordecai. Here's Haman's stupidity and his impatience. 
He could have done nothing and just waited for the 12th month. What was going to happen in the 12th month? All the Jews were going to get massacred. He couldn't wait to let Mordecai die by the king's command. I want him dead now. His own impatience is going to kill him. He had to get it done today. So verse 6. So the Haman came in and the king said to him, and the king said to him, Question, what is to be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Now here is arrogance personified. And Haman said to himself, Who would the king desire to honor more than me? <laughs> you know, we look at this and we, we, um, we go, Wow, unbelievable. And then we listen to our prayer life. And God only exists to meet my needs. If you listen to how we pray, God, please do. God, take care of. God, fix. God, aren't you my, what's the movie Robin Williams is in? Rub the pot. Aladdin, aren't you my, you know, aren't you my genie? We unfortunately treat God as if his job is to make our life better as we define it. Here's the principle. On the screen, God hates pride. Either you humble yourself or God will do it for you. Every knee will bow. Every knee. You either choose to bow or you will be forced to bow, but every knee will bow. Before Haman can open his mouth and ask the king permission, the king asks Haman a question. That's very interesting to me from a plot development standpoint. When a trial lawyer asks a question of somebody in the witness stand, what's the rule? They always know the answer to the question they're asking. Right? They know the, the answer they want. Uh, yeah, they know the right answer. Haman is so self-deceived that he failed to do the logical thing. You know what the logical thing for Haman to do here would be? Why is the king asking me this question? He assumes the king wants to honor him, and so he's asking him, describe for me how you would like to be honored. Assumption. Arrogant people always think it's about them. Always. The most deceived person in the universe is Satan. He really thinks it's all about him. And he believes it. Got some surprises coming. The truth is, the king had planned to honor Mordecai, but he hasn't yet determined how he's going to honor Mordecai, so he's asking Haman what kind of honor will be appropriate to the situation, and Haman tells the king all about the way he would want to be honored. Just like we do with God. God, I deserve this, blah, blah, blah. Listen to Haman's request. He wants a royal robe, he wants a royal horse. He wants a royal crown on the horse. They did put headdresses on the horse. He wants a noble prince to lead the horse through the city square and proclaim, thus it shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor. You think this guy's got a little ego issues? Little <laughs> security? I got to be, you know, you got to praise me, proclaim my glory. I want to be honored just like the king is honored. I want to wear the king's robe. I want to ride the king's horse. If you're King Ahasuerus, even if you're a little thick, 
you got to figure out that Haman really wants to be king. He wants your robe, and he wants your horse, and he wants to proclaim through the city streets, thus it shall be done, blah, blah, blah. Right? Guy's got a little God envy going here. Remember the, remember the, the, the musical The Lion King? What's the key line? I just can't wait to be king. That's him. Sounds like Satan. In Isaiah 14, it says five times, I will be like the most high. What happens in the spiritual realm always happens in the physical realm, just happens a little later and a little smaller, but Haman is like his father, Satan. He wants to be God. Everybody who follows the devil wants to be God. And we have our Adamic nature, and deep down we want to be God too. That's why Pastor Roger was saying submission is so difficult and yet so essential. Verse 10, Then the king said to Haman, Take quickly the robes and the horses you have said, and do so for Mordecai the Jew who is sitting at the king's gate. Do not fall short in anything of all that you have said. <laughs> he can't believe it. He just can't believe it. And you can hear the nails being hammered. <laughs> <laughs> this is the beginning of the great reversal. What does Jesus say? Some of the first shall be last, right? Right? He who wanted respect for Mordecai is now being forced to show respect to Mordecai. You kind of get the feeling that the king knew Haman was getting a little big for his britches. You kind of get the feeling. He knew that. And Haman obviously forgot that pride goes before a fall, but he also forgot he's dealing with a very capricious king who could change his mind in a heartbeat. And he obviously is doing that at that point in time. God humbles Haman by forcing him to give to Mordecai exactly what Mordecai had, given, had demanded to give to him. You know, the scripture says, he who thinks he stands... Take heed lest he fall. Yeah. When your head is in the clouds, sometimes you're not watching where you're walking and you can trip over your own feet. Wow. Kind of watch where you're walking at that point. So he honors Mordecai. He does all this. It says he goes home with his head covered in humiliation and shame. And what does he do? Calls his groupies up, gets on his social media, says, you can't believe what happened to me today. Guys, Facebook, can you believe this? How many Facebook are, is groupie? I don't mean to be trashing Facebook or any of that stuff, but I mean, this guy can't do anything by himself. He's got to tell everybody how great he is, and now he's got to tell everybody how bad it is. By the way, social media is just a communication tool, but be careful what you put out there. Please be careful what you put out there. There's stuff out there that really should not be out there. There's stuff said that shouldn't even be said to anybody but Jesus, because he can forget. He says, I'll forgive your sins as far as east is from the west, right? So what do his groupies tell him? His wife and his groupies tell him that if Mordecai is a Jew, and the king delighted to honor Mordecai, and you tried to kill him, you're on the losing side of this issue, bud. You're in deep doo-doo. Now, about the time they get done talking... The eunuchs come and bring him to the second banquet. I imagine he went to the second banquet with a little 
different attitude than he went to the first one because the humiliations kind of started here at that point in time. So they're going to have tea for three again, and the king asks her again, what is her request? And now she gets right to the point. Verse 3. Then King Esther replied, I think I'm in chapter 7, right? Am I in chapter 7 for those of you? I'm in chapter 7. Tell me where I am. Uh, verse 3, chapter 7, right? Did I say verse 3, chapter 3? Yeah, okay, wherever. We're in Esther, by the way. Then, <laughs> Open your Bibles, please, right? Then Queen Esther said, If I have found favor in your sight... She's kind of sucking up here. This is a very powerful man. And if it pleases the king... Here's the bombshell. Let my life be given me as my petition and my people as my request, for we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. That's the exact formula they put in the decree. Destroyed, killed, and annihilated. Now, if we had only been sold as slaves, men and women, I would have remained silent. For the trouble would not be commensurate with annoyance to the king. She is phrasing this request very delicately and yet very straightforward. If I have found favor, it pleases the king, spare my life, because if you don't do anything, I'm going to die. And all my people are going to die too. It says she's been sold because Haman, of course, is going to confiscate all the property from the Jews that he murders and use that as plunder and uh, pay that to the, to the king's treasury at that point in time. She also says, by the way, if it was just slavery, if we were just going to be enslaved... I would have said nothing. You know, I wouldn't even bothered you, king. But, you know, murder, I think I should come to you about that, right? She makes the request after drinks. There's no mention of dinner anywhere here. When you see banquet, it's drinking wine, drinking wine, drinking wine, drinking wine. Every time you see this king and wine, you see out-of-control behavior. Now, I don't think Esther's a fool. I think Esther knows this guy well enough, and she also knows Haman enough that if there's been some eating and drinking, she's increased her chances of getting a favorable response. That's just common sense, right? So she now wants the king kind of happy before she makes her, quote, small request to spare her life. That's what she's saying, a small request. Now, the king's pride is sure to be involved because his woman... And he thinks he owns women, right? This guy's got a problem. His woman has told him that some unknown person is going to kill his queen. Wow. How would you feel if your spouse came and laid that one on you, right? Powerful people hate feeling powerless. And he's going to assert his authority over the situation. And in verse 5, he starts. And he says, who is he and where is he who would presume to do this? Here's what's almost incredible. He still has not connected the dots between what she was saying and the legislation he had signed to murder three million Jews. He hasn't put them together, which tells you when you signed the legislation for your prime minister to butcher three million people, did you even hear what he said? Right? Who you agreed to? He re well, you know what he really needs to do? Here's the lesson. Get rid of the harem and start taking care of business. Right? 
Come on, folks, don't get distracted with trifles. And this is a message to us. We get distracted with trifles. We get distracted with things that five minutes from now don't matter, let alone in eternity. He needs to get back to business. You can hear his outrage. Who would usurp my authority and my kingdom to harm my queen without my knowledge? And in verse 6, Esther fingers Haman. Esther said, a foe and enemy is this wicked Haman. Then Haman took out his depends. No, it says he, <laughs> it says he became terrified. He knows this king pretty well. Here's what's, here's what's the pride goes before a fall. He really thinks Esther likes him. He doesn't know she's Jewish. Pride blinds you. Pride blinds you. Anytime you and I exhibit pride, we fly blind. We're not perceiving reality. Very, very powerful people make very, very foolish decisions because of pride. And I'm not even going to name any names, but you can go through the headlines and see bright people make foolish decisions. I mean, clearly foolish. Your eight-year-old would go, duh, right? So the trap door has now shut behind Haman. She very wisely positions Haman as not just her enemy, but as an enemy of the state. Verse 8, the king rose in his anger from drinking wine. Yes, right? Out of control king here. Went to the palace garden, but Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. For he saw that harm had been determined against him by the king. He's kitten the picture, kind of, right? The king had been drinking again. Surprise, surprise. He walks out in the garden, and I've read a lot of commentaries that says he's walked out in the garden to cool off. No, this guy doesn't want to cool off. He's never interested in cooling off. He's trying to figure out a course of action. The guy he had recently appointed prime minister has now been fingered for treason by his queen. Think that'd be a little confusing? After a six-pack or two? He might have to kind of think about it, right? He's going out in the garden trying to figure out a course of action. He's taken completely by surprise. Now, there's eunuchs and guards in the rooms here because he's not going to leave Esther alone with Haman if she's told him he's trying to kill her. Haman knows he's in deep trouble and he knows the king well enough. Don't bother him now. Don't go in the garden. Try and persuade him. This is not the time for excuses, right? If I'm going to save my life, I need to make nice-nice with Esther. So he stays back to beg for his life from Esther because he knows there's no sense talking to the king. The king's going to have him executed if you let him go. The one who demanded that everyone bow down before him is now bowing on his knees before a Jewish woman who he's trying to murder. Did you see the humility? you see the great reversal? What do we say? God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, into the mighty hand of God. If you don't humble yourself, God will arrange it for you. Voluntarily choose to bow the knee today. This guy who's demanding that everyone bow to him is now bowing his knee to another. Verse 8. When the king returned from the palace garden into the place where they were drinking, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. Then the king said, Will he even assault the queen with me in the house? As the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. So he's bowing before Esther to plead for his life. Apparently he lost his balance and fell onto the couch where Esther was. Now, the, 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 the Tanakh says that the Holy Spirit pushed him. I read that. 
The truth of it is he probably had too much to drink. Got a little tipsy, tipped over, fell on the couch, you know. In verse 1, verse 7, and verse 8, it says they drink wine, they drink wine, they drink wine. And of course, here's another God's providence. Who happens to walk in at the precise moment he falls on the couch? The king just happens to watch him falling onto the couch with his wife. And he assumes that he's trying to sexually assault the queen. Given this king's, given this king's past history, given this king's past history with wine, women, and couches, I'm sure he thinks his assumption's accurate, right? By the way, in Persian royalty and in Egyptian royalty, there were very strict rules how close you could come to any of the king's concubines, how you could speak to them. The only men that had unrestricted access were eunuchs to the harem. They were very, very concerned about the bloodline, the dynasty, right? Haman's obviously too close, and the king says, when it says the word came out of the king's mouth, that's the word to execute him. The word means the word to execute him, and they covered his face as soon as he pronounced the death sentence. Now, the king apparently hadn't thought exactly how he was going to terminate Haman with extreme prejudice, but he just happened to get a recommendation from a trusted source at that precise moment. <laughs> just happened. Once again, the Holy Spirit. I mean, when you start, you need, to, you need to go through these three chapters and start underlining stuff where you see God working. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs who were before the king, said, Behold, indeed, the gallows standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on behalf of the king. Does that sound like an endorsement? <laughs> By the way, he just built them last night. Right? I mean, 24 hours, they're brand new, not even worn out yet, you know? <laughs> no, but he's been hung on it yet, and the king said, hang him on it. Proverbs 25, 11. A word spoken at the right time is like golden apples on a silver tray. <laughs> they say timing is everything, right? This is a right word at the right time. Talk about poetic justice. If Haman is this nasty, arrogant, egotistical, can you imagine how he treated the help around the palace? It must have been cruel and brutal. I'll bet you dollars to donuts they couldn't wait to get rid of him. And Harbona was probably speaking for every servant of the palace saying, hang him, right? How you treat people who serve you reveals your character. By the way, you serve them. Verse 10. So they hanged Haman on the gallows, which he had prepared for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. Now, hanged here means impaled. They literally rammed a stake into your body. The, uh, the uh, Persians did it right here in your stomach and ran it up through your chest. And they suspended you in the air. It was kind of the cousin to crucifixion. It was very slow death, very painful death, very humiliating. And in Haman's case, he was impaled and hoisted 75 feet in the air for all to see. You know, it's interesting. Haman had always wanted everybody to bow down to him. He'd always wanted to be higher than everybody, above everybody. <laughs> and he got his wish, but I don't think he liked the view. The, the, the interesting, the divine sequence of how the Holy Spirit is working throughout this to accomplish His purposes, to me, is just amazing. It is, it's, it's where 
the name of God is never mentioned, but the work of God is everywhere in this book. And this is one of the things that you as students in manna, I'm going to recommend highly next week, sit down and just read the few chapters. You can read through it and just with a pen and underline where you see stuff that just happened. If it just happened, that means God is working behind the scenes to make it just happen. Let's review. Here's the key idea. God is working. That's John 5, 17. Our theme for this is God will make a way. It doesn't say God will make my way. It says God will make a way where there seems to be no way. You and I, many of us in this room, are facing situations where it doesn't seem to be any way out, any way forward, any solution to what we're facing. You and I don't see it. God works in ways we cannot see, and he has a way for me. Now, it may not be my way. It almost certainly will not be. Because his way is superior to our way, yes? You know the way you access his way? Submission. Submission. Ecclesiastes 3, 7. There is a time to speak and a time to be silent. Ask God to guide your mouth. Covetousness kills contentment. Anytime we're discontent, understand that we're violating the Ten Commandments. We want something that God has not given us, and he's not given it to us for a lot of reasons. If you want to be satisfied with life, submit to God in his plan. Verse 6, or chapter 6, God hates pride. Either you humble yourself or God will do it for you. Here's one of my favorite verses in Scripture, Proverbs 19:21. The Lord's purpose will prevail. He will always accomplish his purpose. Here's your and my choice. Either you can choose to submit and participate with him in his work, or you can choose to rebel and oppose him. Esther and Mordecai are examples of those who cooperated by obeying with God's purpose, and Haman is a classic warning of one who didn't. Okay? Next week we'll finish Esther. I love you guys. And now that you know the truth, do.